On this episode of The Playbook, I have the co-founder of StockX, Josh Luber. And the most interesting thing about Josh is I always wondered, how did you get one of the most wealthy men in the world to not only partner with you, invest in you, but believe that sneakers can change the world? This is Entrepreneurs The Playbook, where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host and CEO of Sports One Marketing, David Meltzer. This is Dave Meltzer with Entrepreneurs The Playbook, and I have my type of CEO because he's a JD MBA. He was driven by Jewish guilt, Josh Luber. Welcome CEO and co-founder of StockX. Man, this is the first uh, interview I've done that started with Jewish guilt. A lot of them end that way, uh, but this is the first one that, that starts that way. That's so. what sets me apart. I'm yeah, living yeah. my truth. Uh-huh. Um, speaking of which, you know, you said something I read about being a CEO, and that you are a master. You know, a, a, what is it? Great of everything. Jack, master Jack of all trades, master of none. none. Yeah, yeah. And I've always been that type. Our lives yeah. have paralleled a lot from the Midwest, and but it does make a great CEO. Yeah, well, the the alternative is unemployed, right? right? Like you're either a CEO or employed. You're not, you know, you're not a master enough to do, you know. So yeah. And you even did that in school. Like mm-hmm. you're talking, you're just going to go to business school, and then you're like, eh, I'll just add a law degree in there as well because more mastery. Um, you know, that's an interesting one. There's a lot of reasons why I ended up going to law. School. I was going back to business school anyway. I was working at a company called Nationwide Warehouse, which is a basically like a low-end furniture company based in Atlanta. And I was a merchant there, and the company went through bankruptcy. And being a merchant, all of a sudden I was sort of front line for all the vendors that were all creditors. And so all of a sudden I was like this 23-year-old kid, like right in the middle of this, like you know, like multi-million dollar, you know, multi-hundred million dollar bankruptcy. And bankruptcy is the natural uh, convergence of business and law. And that was the first time that I'd ever seen a version of law different than my father, who was a tax attorney. And what was relatively boring, and you know, you sort of you very know, boring. Not, it's not relative; it's very boring. <laughs> yeah, let's be honest. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, anyway, so all those sort of things converged, and um, and I swear to God, and, and this will either make me sound like a complete uh, jackass or um, really interesting. Is uh, I had already taken the LSAT because my best friend from high school had taken the LSAT the year before, and I thought I could beat him, and I was like, I'm going to do this anyway, and I had taken the LSAT the year before. Uh, and I did not beat him, but I ended up with a really good score. So I already had a good score, the LSAT, and I wasn't planning on going to law school at that time. Wow. I literally, we're, you know, you're a hyper-competitive, you know, 23-year-old, you know, and that's just how it goes. Where, but, where yeah. did the hyper-competitive, like I believe hyper-competitiveness is one of the traits of success because it allows you to be consistent in what you do, and it lets the universe, in my opinion, guide you because you just do crazy stuff because you're so competitive, but it's really, an, I think, a form of allowance where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is is innate, right? Like my brother and I, my brother's four years younger than me, and we have all of basically the same interests. Um, but he's the exact opposite, right? Like he, like I used to tell people, my brother's like just like me, except he's a lot nicer, right? Like, and <laughs> I got and, one of those. Yeah, and uh, he, my brother's not a rabbi, by the way. <laughs> yeah, okay, uh, good. But he, he works for StockX, um, which was he was the very first person I went and hired. Um, but you know, I, you know, I grew up playing sports. But I part, you know, I, I think part of that is just 
it's just innate. It's sort of like who you are. And like, if you're like the, the jerk that was always trying to win a Monopoly, you know, and, and hiding money under your, your like the board, like, I, I don't know, right? I, I, I don't think you ever plan that. It just sort of happens. You know what I find about competitiveness and, you know, running a sports agency around the greatest athletes of all time, they're innately, my business partner, Warren Moon, is the most hyper-competitive person I've ever met. But one thing I've noticed is that people that aren't innately hyper-competitive, it, it almost can't be learned. You can't turn the no. switch on, but you absolutely can turn the switch off. You know, whether it's Mike Tyson that I've met who absolutely, he turned the switch off. Uh, you know, myself, like I'm the kid that threw the yep. checkerboard at people and I, I literally would cheat and do whatever I could to win. And now I've lost whatever that was. I just don't have it in me anymore for most of my life. There's so, yep. Sometimes I can still turn it on. Yep. But I, I think part of that, there is an element of just, just maturity of, of growing and, and... Controlling it more? Controlling it more, but honestly, I, like, I mean, it's almost... Um, I, I don't want to make this like a negative, but it's almost if you can understand the longer game better and where that'll serve you better to, to not be hyper-competitive, right? To concede the smaller wins, you know, to be more conciliatory in those winners. Because once you see the hyper-competitiveness start to impact um, what you're trying to win or what you're trying to do, right? And, and I think that just comes from maturity and experience to understand that like you don't have to win every single one. You don't have to win necessarily this specific conflict at, at that time. And I think that helps as well. Um, also, getting married and having kids, that, that sort of helps too, <laughs> right. because like, you, you know, people that check you on a daily basis. So One yeah. thing about law school and business school with all the different case law and situational knowledge that you get to witness by reading all these stories is that you start yeah. understanding what I believe is the polarity. The polarity of every strength in a different place is a weakness, like competitive, yeah, yeah. or even every weakness uh, can be a, a strength if you move it to another place. Looking in what you know as an entrepreneur, a student of entrepreneur, watching what you did, you kind of took a weakness in the marketplace where everyone thought it was completely controlled. Where you now, you know, co founding with Gilbert, you know, I look and say, people ask me who could take over for you know Amazon, who could take Amazon out? Well, StockX, you literally could take them out. Can you explain though? Because most people don't yeah. understand that marketplace, yeah. Can you explain how you took? What I see is a weakness, you know, an overcrowded marketplace and a completely saturated, huge business and completely turned it into a strength. Yeah, you know, I don't think that we necessarily take Amazon out, but we there's a third business here. There's a third business model that, that at some point sits alongside the other two that we know. So the, the two business models we're most familiar with from marketplaces is eBay and Amazon. And notwithstanding, eBay's troubles and, and where they are compared to Amazon, those two models will always continue to exist, right? So eBay is great if you want that long tail, unique, one of a kind item, right? You want a, a Led Zeppelin t-shirt from 1972, like great, like that's, a, eBay's a great place to find that. And those products will never sell on StockX because there's no liquidity. Or Amazon. Right? right? Well, well, for sure they won't, they won't no. sell on Amazon either. <laughs> but, but in StockX generally, those one of a kind, unique stuff, there's no market for a one of one. Right. Amazon will always be better for things that are purely commoditized. So uh, paper towels, toothpaste, Cheerios, right? Like th things that have essentially infinite supply, right? They'll make as many Cheerios as people will buy. And so it's okay that Cheerios have a retail price. Cheerios cost four bucks a box, will make as many people eat. I would say right? anything P&G buys or sells, yeah, right? that, Absolutely, that, for sure, right. that, that fits into it <laughs> as well, right? 
And so we won't touch those products either. But everything in the middle from supplies to anything that's finite supply, this is a supply and demand constrained marketplace where you need to understand supply and demand to get to what the true value that product should be. The Led Zeppelin t-shirt is just whatever one person will pay. No problem, there's only one of them. Cheerios, four bucks a box, cost plus, whatever it is. But your watch, almost all consumer goods, the products we sell, sneakers, streetwear, watches, handbags, you know, collectibles, um, wine, you know, anything that has a finite amount of that product that exists, that is supply and demand. And StockX is just a better model to figure out how to price and trade those products, better than eBay, better than Amazon. And the best part about this is that we didn't make it up, right? All we did was copy the way the stock market works in order to come to this concept of true market price, right? What is the, a fair market price for a share of Nike stock? You never worry about it. Nike's trading at whatever, 70 bucks, and, and that's the fair price for it. That's what we're doing for consumer goods. And so um, we don't necessarily take out Amazon in the future state, but you sit alongside as a third form of marketplace that takes all those products away from eBay and Amazon. By the way, there's way more products that will sit in those two at eBay and Amazon, those models. And that's okay, there's still a whole lot in the middle. Yeah, billions of dollars of product. People buy an emotion for logical reasons and people will ask me all the time, Dave, what should I sell this for? You know what, what I like right. about StockX is it takes all the emotional aspect into account as a variable, right? Just like the stock market right. does. And yet, it gives the ultimate answer to what something should be sold for because it's what someone's willing to pay for it. Yep. That's the perceived value in reality. Yeah, and what the market is willing to pay for it. And that, you know, that's a, a, a key distinction. But to your point, the, the first thing, it absolutely takes emotion into it. And the gut reaction is, well, it shouldn't or it can't, pricing can't take emotion into it. But it does. It's just a part of demand, right? This, this is, again, it's just supply and demand. I mean, this is econ 101, like at its most basic, right? This is like prereq classes for, for business school. And, and emotion is just one small piece of demand, right? Supply is frankly the easy part. We know supply, supply is however many widgets the, the brands and the companies make. But demand, we've never had a good way to understand true consumer demand for products. Demand is always an estimate off of last year. It's a forecast, it's however many sales we want to hit. Like there was no true form of it. But in the stock market and on StockX, people have bids and they can bid whatever they want to pay. That, I mean, and that's tied to someone's PayPal or their credit card. So that it's like perhaps the truest form of consumer demand. And what's encountered in that is, is people's emotions and their history and their, and their ties to it. Not only how much you know, they want this, but you know, what else goes into that. And that's a really, really unique position and that's why it's been successful. And as a hyper successful entrepreneur, one of the things I think is interesting about law school is I always saw there's two types of people that went to law school. There's the ones that completely limit their point of entry. Like they have it charted out. I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to work for Casey Wasserman and become CEO of Lee Steinberg, right? Like they have it all charted out. Yeah. And then there's guys like you and I that never limit our point of entry and end up partnering with some of the biggest names in the world. And some people call it manifestation. I don't, right? Like I think that allowance side is a hyper aggressive, hyper competitive aspect of after you've done all the work that you're supposed to do, that you have th this will of somehow attracting or recognizing or being aware of an opportunity. One of the most extraordinary things about you is who your co-founder is, just like me, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you, you're like, oh yeah, it's Gilbert's guy. I'm more Moon's guy for years, right? It's hard to brand yourself. Uh, but yeah. I think it's important for people to know how do you think you attracted Dan Gilbert as your, your business partner? Yeah, you know, that goes to a, um, a kind of a higher level question. A lot of people ask um, some version of, like, what advice do you have for other entrepreneurs or business people or, or younger? And my advice is always 
two things, and they're the most basic two things, and, and this gets to sort of how I ended up meeting Dan, but one is, is talk to everybody about everything, right? Ideas are worthless. Execution is Thank the you. only thing that matters, right? Never show up and, and to someone who's gonna spend time with you and have an NDA or, like, you know, if, by the way, if anyone is good enough that they can go steal your, your idea and go and build it and they're not doing anything else, they're just sitting around, like, that's just not the reality, right? So it's important nice. to talk to everybody so you find business partners, you find, you know, you refine your idea, you figure out, you know, you know what to do about it. And the second, which is a, a related point and perhaps even more basic, is just do something. Right, like the, the idea that ha the plan has to be perfect or you have to go find the perfect partner, like whatever you can do to be incrementally moving that forward. And for me, um, I, I basically built a price guide for sneakers where we were scraping eBay data in between startups I was working for IBM. And so I just needed to be doing something. And, and you know, if you're a startup guy and you go work at IBM, the first thing you do is you start working on stuff on the side, right? <laughs> and so I was doing all this data work as a strategy consultant. And so I was like, man, I wonder if I get all of some sneaker data just to play with my own amusement, just to kind of see what I could do with it. Cause I was doing all this data work and I've collected sneakers since I was probably 10. And so we figured out how to scrape eBay data. We figured out how to clean it and build a price guy. We built a company that was called Campless. And uh, Campless was a playoff of the fact that people camp out for sneakers, right? So our tagline was no more camp less. I was very proud <laughs> of how witty my, my slogan was. But, nice. but the, the idea was like, this was just, the first time people were doing real analytics around the secondary market to create a price cut. And I had no, not only did I have no idea, I couldn't have even imagined that if I do this, it will lead to me meeting one of the most successful business people in the world who have the exact same idea as me and that we will do this together. Like that just doesn't happen. But there was something here and so I was like, listen, we just gotta get this out into the world. And there was no fancy website. I created a blog and I was tweeting about it and just sharing this idea and this data with as many people as I could. And there's many steps in between, but each one of those leads to the fact that like, it happened to be Dan had a very similar idea at the same time. And when he and his team started looking at the market, everything they saw was around campus because we were the only people doing that. And I couldn't have known that that was gonna attract him, but it, it, put, it set us up to be able to do that. And that was really the key. And it's so interesting because people, I believe, have this misguided belief that you, know, you, you love what you do. That's a learned trade. And what happens is people think you work in the tennis shoe industry and I work in the sports industry that, you know, that's the passion. I, almost every person I know loves a sport of some kind, <laughs> yeah. right? And it's like so ridiculous. We're like, how do I get a job in sports? I'm like, what does that even mean? It's like, yeah. how do I get a job in tennis shoes? Yeah. Um, we have to develop skills, knowledge, yeah. and then with the inspiration that we have, we apply it normally to what we love, right? So if you're like a foodie, you may have taken the exact same platform and applied it to, you know, some sort of unique cuisine. Yeah, yeah. And so people try to, I think, reverse engineer it and they say, and you didn't do this. I love tennis shoes. Therefore, I'm going to create a business about tennis shoes. You created a business and then applied it to the tennis shoes. And it was almost the, the inverse, right? You know, people ask that. And my first question is always that, you know, you know, I'm a startup guy first, right? Like this is about the process. This is about building this business and it happens to be around sneakers. And by the way, it's called StockX and not SneakerX because it, it's about a lot more than sneakers. Right. The fact that we've grown so fast in sneakers and become the largest marketplace in the world for sneakers is almost a red herring and 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 to some extent um, like you know hides the like the the real power of the business. But for me personally, I've started three other startups before this that had nothing to do with sneakers and almost intentionally so. 
right? Like, you know, we were talking about earlier, sort of growing up at a, at a time where it was, it was, you know, doctor, lawyer, or rabbi, and those are the <laughs> or only- failure. Yeah, or failure. <laughs> and, and so for me, like, the idea of like chasing your passion in 1999 when I graduated college, like that, did, the word entrepreneur didn't exist, right? The internet barely existed. So um, for me, the first three startups I started, I almost, I, I intentionally didn't go into what was my, one of my largest personal passions, almost out of fear of creating a business that was just an excuse to play with sneakers, right? Mm. Because it, it certainly would have been what, what the look was on the outside. And so perhaps it's serendipitous that the most successful one is one where I finally actually did merge the two, but it wasn't, you know, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't an intentional thing to go do that, right? It, it, super, it just happens. That's super important because when I graduated law school, I'm so old that Westlaw just started. So my choice was litigate, oil and gas litigation, which my mom's like super successful, this boy's gonna buy me a house and a car, to selling legal research online before online. Yeah. And my mom actually told me the internet was gonna be a fad and I better take the law job. That's before any entrepreneurs. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, they literally nine months out of law school, I was a millionaire, and they were telling me how lucky I was and what a passion I had because I went to law school. And in my head, I'm like, this is such BS because nine months ago, everybody was literally looking at me going, this guy's crazy. How did you, you know, law school, business school, dad's a tax lawyer, whatever culture you come from of guilt, like yeah. both of us do, you know, it's pretty insane to start off in the entrepreneur side and startups in 1999. Yeah. You know, I, I was CEO of Samsung at that time, the phone division, they didn't even know what a smartphone was, they called it a convergence device. So I remember what entrepreneurship <laughs> was like. didn't quite make it, did yeah, it? Yeah, no, it didn't, it didn't, it's not very smart. Not like your great quote, um, but for you, how did you fight the voices, because that's a big part of being successful is what other people think. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that I've started four startups, one when I was single, one when I was married with no kids, when I was married with one kid, when I was married with two kids, right? And so, you know, I mean, so it, it, it moved from your, your parents <laughs> to your, uh, your family pretty quickly, but what was important was, you know, I met my wife in law school, um, and so regardless, of, you know, even though I only she's practiced, a lawyer as yeah, well. she's an immigration attorney, so, um, you know, one of us can help people, the other can be the sort of unapologetic capitalist. Um, but, you know, she knew from the moment that, that we met sort of uh, who I was. And she knew that, you know, even though, I mean, I, I graduated law school and I mean, I just really enjoyed law school. And because of that, I did really well. And I had the opportunity to go work at, at you know, a really uh, great law, law firm. firm. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I, and it was like the peak of the law market. Like, I think I made more then than what first year associates make today, uh, 13 years later. And, but my wife knew from, from that moment, like, that, like, this is not like reality, right? Like, and it was about that, that she understood that, um, that the voices weren't nearly as much, but it was also weighing that against just being smart around like how you live and, and understanding that like, listen, like we're, we're gonna save the money that we make at the law firm and we're not gonna, right? Because like, this is what right. we both wanted to do and, and that she was 100% she was behind that. You're very smart for yeah. marrying for money. I appreciate that. No, I'm kidding. Um, last question. <laughs> Your wife's going to hate me. She doesn't uh, even know me. I'm just kidding. Um, last question. Yeah. Side hustle. Yeah. Right? One thing that we both have in common is like you went to law school, not necessarily be a lawyer, right? You took the LSAT, not necessarily go to law school. Yeah. You started working at IBM, not necessarily to be a data analytic guy. People have problems with understanding how to have a side hustle and be able to transfer the hustle into the side hustle. Yeah. Can you give any advice on how to do that? Well, first of all, there is so much time like in a day. Like that, 
you know, I mean, it, it is absolutely, and if you don't have kids, you have no excuse whatsoever, like, in terms <laughs> Thank of that. You, like, man. It's hard to, right, like, understand like, the guys that work for you. You're like, yeah. are you kidding me? I mean, it's just unbelievable, right? There, there's so much time, you know, in a day. And, um, and, and like, and so back to it, it's like, you just be doing something, right? There's, there's something you can be doing that's more productive than, you know, watching TV or going to a movie or, you know, or going out. Um, and, uh, and, and that's really what it is. It's, it's, it's hundred percent time management and just understanding that. And, you know, for me, um, even with my, with campus that I started while at IBM and at that time I was married, I had one kid, my wife understood enough that campus was real enough that I had two legit full-time jobs and she helped extraordinarily in the beginning with my daughter, my first child. But I was nearing this time where she was pregnant with our second child. And I knew that, okay, like at that point, that's not going to fly anywhere. I didn't have to ask like at that one. Now that I had, I had two jobs and one kid. I was about to go to two jobs and two kids. And so you just understand of like where time management hits real roadblocks versus, you know, perceived, but like, there's just so much time in the day. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a little bit embarrassing. Um, when when you hear people that don't have time to do stuff when it, like if you don't have kids like you have time to do it so. yeah and you look at things as productive and accessible mm -hmm. this has been just a wealth of knowledge i'm a big fan and student of you and i look Thank for you. guys of how they become successful and it is just i'm really excited about the next 20 years where you're going so i appreciate you sharing your time with all the entrepreneurs especially me thank you josh Luber, co-founder mm -hmm. ceo of StockX, extraordinary entrepreneur this is dave Meltzer with entrepreneurs the playbook well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Playbook as much as me. On a personal note, I just wanted to thank everyone for making The Playbook such a success. Don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer with The Playbook.